Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. The Professional Athlete's Brain Health Study was initiated in 2011 to examine the cumulative effects of repetitive concussions and subconcussive impacts to the brain in a group of professional fighters. The study has since broadened to include athletes and other sports exposed to repetitive head impacts like professional bull riders and is the first to study active and retired athletes concurrently. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the findings in the first 10 years of this longitudinal study and what's to come. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute, and joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Charles Burnick. Dr. Burnick is a neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute's Lou Rovo Center for Brain Health in Las Vegas. Charles, welcome to Neuropathways. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell our listeners who don't know you uh, so well a little bit about yourself, how you decided that uh, this was going to be the area that you wanted to study in your training, just so we can understand you a little bit better. Well, I'm a neurologist and got into the field of uh, Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative diseases actually close to 30 years ago when it wasn't such a hot topic at that time, uh, which it's grown to be. And among the kind of neurodegenerative diseases that have kind of cropped up and have gotten a lot more attention lately because of the uh, notoriety of the, uh, of the people that get it is this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is the result uh, in many cases of, of extensive exposure to head impact. So Football players are the most notorious to get it, but you can see it in any of these contact sports. And the problem is, Glenn, we just know very little about it. Mm -hmm. So I saw on TV the other day, I was watching one of the football practices, and they have the new helmets, uh, these Guardian helmets, uh, which is interesting because now in our baseball teams now called the Guardians, so it sort of struck my attention that they called the Guardian helmets. But it looks like sort of a foam padding that goes on the outside of the helmets. Uh, tell, do you know much about that? Can you tell me anything about that? I know it's a little bit off from what we're discussing today, but I found it interesting. Yeah, I, there's been a whole industry really looking at how how you can actually intervene early. I mean, be, before people get these long, um, long-term effects of head in, injuries, and of course, that that is trying to reduce the impacts on the head with hits. And so there's been a, a, a variety of helmets that have been developed. And the idea is to try to reduce that, that impact. The problem is with concussion and even subconcussive hits, it's it's really stopping the movement of the head is the is the problem. So the, the force of the impact is one, but and then the other is kind of the velocity of how how the head is moving on the neck and these helmets probably help to some degree, but that's still going to be a big issue. Yeah. I suspect, uh, and I don't know for sure, and it's a little bit off topic, but I suspect that a lot of the high schools around nowadays are doing a lot less contact drills to try to decrease these subconcussive events, those types of things. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I'll say this. I think in the future, we're going to see a lower incidence and prevalence of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, because of these interventions that are being made now. Yeah. So that sounds like a good thing. So I'm happy to hear that. You know, 
Uh, I played high school football. I didn't play after that. Uh, I played up in Canada. Uh, it's not really the same football as in America, but the hitting is the same and the head injury is the same. So uh, hopefully uh, I didn't have too much of an issue at that point in time, but I guess time will ultimately tell with it. Tell us about the study and how it came to be. Uh, We have a decade's worth of data, so we'll get into that. But tell me how it came to be and how it transitioned, because initially in fighters and then expanded. Yes. So the seed of this study really began in in the early 2000s. At that time, there was more and more information coming out about the pathology of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And of course, there were a number of very tragic cases that, that got a lot of publicity of people who, who died with a CTE. You know, we felt that this is a, a disease that needs to be studied more. We are in Las Vegas, and Las Vegas is the fight capital of the world. And I think many of us in medical school probably passed over the concept of dementia pugilistica and then never thought about it anymore. But, but of course, the CT was first described in, in boxers. And again, we, we felt we had the opportunity to um, actually recruit and retain a large number of, of professional fighters, both boxers and, and mixed martial artists, to really understand kind of the natural history of what happens when people are exposed to repetitive head impacts. So it took us a few years to kind of Put all our networks together, and and we were very pleased that the combat industry was was quite accepting of our interest in studying it. So the Nevada Athletic Commission, the major promoters, including the UFC uh, and top ranked boxing and, and others, actually came together around 2008 2009, and got us some funding along with then the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, pitched in, and we were able to launch this study in 2011. That's when we started enrolling uh, participants. So the idea is to make it like a Framingham study of repetitive head impacts and and try to understand uh, long-term the natural history, how things develop, risk factors, biomarkers, and and eventually, of course, interventions that we can do to reduce the risk of this, this disease. And when do individuals enroll in this study? Could it be those that are done their, their fighting career or early on in the middle of it? Yeah, Glenn, you know, I, I think we took the tact that CT is probably like other neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, where we know the disease process actually starts in the brain years before you have any symptoms. So we really wanted to try to understand the whole development of this condition. So we intentionally said, all right, certainly would be interested in retired athletes who had extensive exposure. But what we really want is active participants as well, active fighters, to understand, again, what happens as they're actively exposed to head impacts, as well as what happens when they stop fighting and and, and when this transition period occurs. Because some people probably will continue to progress in, in the changes that occur in the brain, and some people won't. And being able to identify those differences can be, of course, huge in in how we would approach treatment. And what have you found with individuals? Uh, People go running the other way, they come running towards it. My guess is that they're not interested in anything that would stop them from doing something that would allow them to make a living. And I'm sure that there's some degree of apprehension that someone's going to tell me, I can't do this 
and this is how I make a living? Or have you not found that as a problem? You know, interestingly, it hasn't been a problem. And I think it's how you frame it. We make it clear to the participants that, you know, first of all, all the information we gather is confidential. So it doesn't go to the promoter. It doesn't go to the Nevada Athletic Commission. We share it with the participant and that's it. So they they've hopefully feel assured that nothing we discover is going to have any direct consequence to, to their career. And, and I think a lot of people are, are actually interested in their own brain health. Many aren't, <laughs> to be honest with you. So, you know, many join the study because they get an MRI scan for free, which they can use for getting their license to fight. And, and there's other reasons, you know, many reasons why people participate. But I think there, there's a subset of individuals who, and, and those probably who have stuck with this over the 10 years, who actually do have some interest and, and do want to know if they're getting, you know, damage to the brain, they want to know it and, and, and make decisions accordingly. So tell me the things that you're measuring. Uh, do you check MRI? Do you do lumbar punctures on anybody? Are you measuring blood biomarkers of head injury, things such as tau? Do you do neurocognitive testing? Tell me the tests that you run on these folks. Yep, all of the above. So so they get uh, annual imaging. Uh, well, actually, after a while, it's every other year, but they get MRI scans on a regular basis. And interestingly, in, in Cleveland, you know, you have your 7T MRI scanner, and we have done a sub-study looking at how 7T MRI compares to 3T MRI. So that, that was kind of, that's kind of an interesting sub-study. We, in a subset, have had PET tau imaging, just as you kind of brought up, tau protein is, is one of the characteristics pathologically of CTE. So we've done studies with PET tau imaging. We do blood biomarkers. We have had some really interesting findings that hopefully will be published soon about some of the biomarkers that we're looking at, neurofilament light, GFAP. We do measure various tau species as well. They get speech samples, which is kind of a, um, an interesting biomarker that, that's being studied by our collaborative group at the University of New Mexico. They get behavioral questionnaires. They get computerized cognitive testing. So our goal really was to, to throw a large net, <laughs> trying to look at you know, what, what could be potentially helpful to us as we go forward as, again, as, as far as indicators of some process that, that actually may be progressive in the brain. Anything you can tell us about the 7T? Yeah, 7T is really interesting, as you kind of might imagine. So particularly with white matter lesions, you definitely can detect more on 7T imaging. Hard yet to know, again, if that's going to have a, a clinical value, uh, but there's no question that that you can you can detect more change uh, with 7T than, than with 3T. Are you seeing micro hemorrhages? No, interestingly, that there's no difference in that between the two modalities. So it looks like 3T MRI can pick up microhemorrhage as well as the 7T. And also kind of counterintuitive, um, the microhemorrhages are much more common in fighters than in controls. So the things that we really see, I guess, that differentiate the two uh, controls and, and, and fighters are more related to volume changes, white matter integrity, IDTI for example, uh, sequences, uh, resting state conductivity. So some of these kind of uh, both functional and structural changes. And is the the structural change or the atrophy, is it asymmetric? Is it uh, temporal lobes? Is it uh, variable? Or 
Yeah, well, that's another, you know, kind of interesting thing. In our active fighters, uh, we see most of the changes, volumetric changes, in the thalamus and corpus callosum. So these deep structures that either carry a lot of fibers or are connected to a lot of fibers. Yet in the retired fighters, um, it's actually the changes we see over time are in hippocampus and amygdala. And, and so we think there, there may be, in some sense, two things we're seeing. So in active fighters, you're seeing just the result of axonal injury, cumulative axonal injury. Whereas in retired fighters, those that show these progressive decline in hippocampus and amygdala may have the development of a neurodegenerative process. And, and that's um, trying to actually develop some type of, a, in some sense, a classifier using a variety of MRI measures to, to be able to predict who who may be actually uh, on a progressive course. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many subjects in your trial? So we have 800 participants, well, a little over that uh, now, about 100 of them are controls, uh, and then about 100 are retired fighters. Uh, the rest are active. But what's neat is um, there are both men and women, because in a lot of these studies, certainly, of course, of football, you don't have any women. So we don't really know if there's any differences by gender or sex. And the other thing, of course, just the nature of our cohort is it's very diverse uh, racially and ethically. To that point, uh, one of the the areas that we're really interested in is kind of early life, uh, psychosocial, social economic type of differences that may put individuals maybe at a higher risk of certain things. So it's been a decade. How long are you going to follow these patients for? Well, that's a money issue. (laughs) As long as we can keep it funded, we'd like to keep it going. Clearly, the the most important information we get from this project will be this data that we're accumulating over time. And you'd say, well, 10 years is a pretty long time. But in a a disease process that probably goes over three or four decades, I mean, it's probably not a long time. And so um, we have a core of people who've stayed in there, a couple hundred who are very committed, and I think uh, we'll keep it going as long as we can. We do have funding for another five years, um, and uh, we do have plans to add a few things, and uh, an autopsy component, which, of course, is critical to understand really what we're seeing, as well as I mentioned some of the further work into uh, socioeconomic, psychosocial, these type of influences on the outcomes. And are you adding new patients still or not adding new patients? No, we're at, uh, we, we are uh, definitely adding uh, and replenishing the till. We're particularly interested in certain groups. Um, so retired fighters, we would like to have more retired fighters. We have a lot of, of course, active. Retired fighters, uh, women, um, we need actually more controls that are matched age and education-wise. So uh, we'll we'll keep the enrollment rolling forward. Although that the biggest emphasis now is the retention part. Have you found anything that surprised you? I don't know if anything's surprising. To be honest with you, I think uh, what, what's kind of the most recent things that's that's will be published in neurology is looking at at actually individuals who went into the study as active fighters and then retired while while in the study. So now we have them when they're actively exposed and when they're not. And the good news is a lot of them get better or stabilize, at least in the short run. So now whether a subset of those people are going to then revert and, and continue to get worse, that's, that's really going to be the, the interesting question, which hopefully we'll be able to answer. 
And uh, obviously a very complicated question to answer at this point in time, but anything that we can do to prevent, uh, other than obviously uh, decreasing the number of hits to the head, uh, anything we can do to prevent development of problems down the road? Yeah, I think it, it all really does involve reducing the hits in the head or understanding a, a better way in terms of training. So, so for example, um, it may be that, you know, somebody can tolerate sparring for, you know, a certain amount of rounds per week or playing, having contact drills, you know, for a certain period of time. And then, you know, then there needs to be a rest period or, um, you know, how to, how to kind of deal with re return of play. And I think there's a lot of these issues of, you know, letting the brain repair itself, because we know that, you know, if you had a concussion, then you are more likely to have another one within a, a short period of time. If you're continue to be exposed, in other words, there's this vulnerability. And if we have a better understanding of kind of like how much time it takes you know, for the brain to kind of recover or inflammatory changes to go down, or are there ways that we can reduce, you know, whatever is happening that, that increases that susceptibility to, to further injury. So I think that's going to take a lot of work, but, but I think along with just these common sense rules of limiting contact and, and the age at which you start a sport, I, I think we'll be able to drill down a little better as far as, uh, training methods and, and and advice to to athletes that that do this for their career. And by the way, Glenn, I you know I would say this: we talk about athletes um, because they're the most visible, but there's a lot of work on military um, and blast exposed in, uh, injuries, and that a lot of it kind of mimics the same thing. So it's not quite the same, but but I think there may be a generalizability of of some of these findings. Have you seen any change in glove development over time? Are, are boxers using more padded gloves? Does that decrease the amount of force or not necessarily? Yeah, not necessarily. It, well, it may, it may reduce a little bit of this, uh, the force, it, though it does provide a bigger area, <laughs> you know, kind of a bigger area to, to, to hit. And, and again, I think it's that, that movement of the head, um, the torsional movement, which seems to be damaging. And so probably again with, with boxing, um, it's, it's, it's just reducing the, the number of hits that a person kind of uh, suffers from. And it's also kind of interesting when we looked at both our MMA and boxing cohorts, um, the MMA people always come out better. And it's probably because they, they really don't get hit as much. I mean, it, that's not the total intent of the sport. So and any data on skull thickness, or as you mentioned earlier, is it the movement of the soft tissue within the calvarium that's the problem? If you have a thicker skull, is that better? Or any data? Yeah, it, it, that's a really interesting point um, because you know you always hear about people that could take a blow, and and you know, so why is that? Is it is it just something anatomical? And and this brings up, of course woodpeckers, you know, who are constantly hitting their head. Um, but, you know, so there's, there's something anatomical that that has a protective effect. We've talked to our neuroradiologists about this, whether there was ways to measure that. And uh, I guess it's a hard thing to measure, but that's a good question. You know, whether there are, there is just some anatomical features that actually protect individuals or, or reduce their risk. So do you think, uh, and again, this is hypothetical down the road type of stuff, but do you foresee a, a point in time that somebody would have a liquid biomarker, whether it's tau or the neurofilament light chain, 
and they would have a blood test done before a fight, and if it's at a certain level, then they won't be able to fight? Or is this something that's not a prime time thing? There's too much variability between people. Uh, or I suppose you could say, hey, this is your baseline, so you would know what a change from your baseline is, and you if it really correlates or not. Or, or am I thinking about things that way too far in the future to know? No, I, I don't think it's that far in the future. I think the neurofilament light, we've actually discussed uh, with the UFC as, as far as looking at that, again, to, to help training, really. You know, neurofilament light will go up after acute injury. And so you could test it on a weekly basis during a, somebody's camp, an eight weeks camp of, of training before a fight, and actually adjust training based on a neurofilament light. I think uh, what we're finding out about this other uh, marker, GFAP, is that elevations of it over time are correlated with volumetric loss and, and, and cognitive changes. So it may be at least in retired athletes that you can you could follow GFAP over time. And if like, for example, if you see it kind of going up uh, longitudinally, then that that may be a sign or a signal of another, again, a process going on. So I don't think it's that far off. I think we need to understand it a bit more and, and also be able to test it in other cohorts that are exposed to head injuries. But but I don't think we're that far away from it. Any other data that uh, is around that you care to share with us that we haven't discussed? Yeah, I, I, I think the biggest things that, that we're kind of excited about is one, the, the you know, the MRI findings and what are the features that may be helpful, the, these fluid biomarkers and how they they play out. And the the other part that we're really looking at now is things like genetics. Are there genetic factors? Uh, we're working with folks at Lerner, Dr. Beckris, for example, um, on neuroinflammation and actually methylation of, of, of uh, DNA and, and such to, to really drill down. And we may be able to, to have biomarkers that could be useful in terms of, again, predicting or detecting people who may be developing CTE. So I used to do some work uh, decades ago with fighter pilots and, you know, they're very apprehensive because they don't like you to test anything on them would then stop them from being able to fly. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there's some degree of that with the boxers as well, right? That the fear is you're going to find something you're going to say they can't do it. But it sounds like uh, in at least in your group, people have been very open to this and and you have confidentiality within the study. So Sounds like very exciting stuff. Looking forward to these papers that are coming out uh, and the continued uh, success that I'm sure that you'll have. And uh, hopefully we'll change how training is done, decrease the risk that a lot of these athletes have as they get older. So uh, I'm quite excited about the work that you're doing. I really appreciate your joining us today. Well, thank you very much. And I I really appreciate the opportunity to share some of these findings with your audience. Uh, it, It is very exciting to us. We hope it is others. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.